In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. The second chapter of the Gospel of John is perhaps not the easiest chapter of the Bible to preach from, but I will say that it is much easier to preach from this chapter to Episcopalians than it is to teetotaling Baptists or small children, both of which I've done in the past. The difficulty lies in explaining why Jesus chose to create an abundance of excellent wine as his first miracle. And when we look at the text itself, we see that Jesus does not explain why he does this, the way he does with some of his signs. There is no discourse that follows this miracle to interpret and unravel what just happened. We have to look elsewhere. Well, vineyards abounded in the land of the Old and New Testaments. And wine is the only way to preserve the fruit of the vine for year-round consumption when there is no refrigeration. And as the psalmist says, wine makes glad the heart of man. Well, I have trouble understanding what goes into the process of winemaking and um, that gladness, I understand. But there's something for me, there's an analogy for me that hits it a little bit closer. And that comes from something in my own family. My grandmother, we affectionately call her the queen of desserts. And that is because everything that she bakes turns out golden. Whether it is her dark chocolate earthquake cake or the macadamia nut cookies, or that sour cream coffee cake that barely makes it to the morning when it's supposed to be eaten, or those exquisite lemon bars. Her lemon bars are a special treat because of their secret ingredient. And the secret ingredient comes from one of her other impressive skills. She has a green thumb. Her plants thrive and bloom, and once a year that funny potted tree in the corner of her living room puts out flowers, and then a few months later there are a couple of green fruits that appear. They look like limes, but she is patient enough to wait and wait until they ripen into those amazing Meyer lemons. And she takes those special sweet lemons and uses them to make those lemon bars that make my heart glad. And so, how disappointing would it be if one year that lemon tree did not produce those lemons? There would be no lemon bars for us. If it stopped producing, maybe she would have to get rid of the plant altogether. A barren lemon tree would be just like a fruitless vine. Vineyards and grapes and wine were an everyday feature in the life of ancient Israel. So much so that God uses the image of a vine and a vineyard to describe his own people. In the prophets and in the Psalms, Israel is called a vine that God brought out of Egypt and planted in the promised land. God tended this vine with care and persistence. But when he went to find fruit, he found only wild grapes. 
The people of ancient Israel were no more or less fallen and sinful than we are. They failed to do what they were made to do, and they failed to live up to God's expectations of them. And yet, in the midst of continuing spiritual barrenness, a ray of hope begins to shine for God's people. God speaks repeatedly through the prophets, through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, and Joel. And he says that there would come a day when God would make up for the lack and the failure of his own people by sending a Messiah. The prophet Joel describes this messianic age by saying, during that time when the Messiah would come, then the mountains would drip with sweet wine. That wine conveys the idea of joy, celebration, and abundance. And Isaiah repeats this idea in chapter 25, where the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food on his holy mountain, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine well refined. And on that mountain, God will swallow up the shroud that is cast over all peoples. He will swallow up death forever, and the reproach of his people he will take away. Here is a promise made by God that there would one day be the greatest party ever. And this feast would coincide with the removal of his people's shame and even the destruction of death itself. Supernatural abundance at a feast then reminds us of this promise. In this wedding at Cana, Mary pulls her son Jesus aside and she says to him, They have no wine. A Jewish wedding lasted for several days, and the groom and his family were expected to provide enough food and drink for not only the two families celebrating, but the entire village. With her short phrase, they have no wine, Mary alludes to the, sh- the shame and that social reproach that would come upon the groom. For failing to provide. He failed to live up to the expectation of his culture. He was about to let down his new bride, his whole family, and indeed that whole community. Mary knows this, and she goes to Jesus, knowing too that Jesus has the same quality of mercy that characterizes his heavenly Father. Jesus has mercy on the groom. Behind the scenes, he quietly and without fanfare changes water into wine. He tells the servants to fill those six huge empty stone jars with water. And when they draw the water out of the jars, it has miraculously become wine. And Jesus doesn't just create some kind of B-grade boxed wine or just enough wine to carry them through to the end of the party. No, he creates 150 gallons of top-grade excellent wine. And then the groom gets the credit for what Jesus has just done. 
The master of the feast marvels at the quality of the wine and at the host's generosity in saving the best wine for last. Even though the groom would have fallen under shame and condemnation as a result of his failure, Jesus makes up abundantly for his lack. So too for us, Jesus delights in transferring his merit and his worth to us. He accomplishes this by taking on our own shame and condemnation, that reproach that would have justly come to us. Jesus offered his own self for us. He poured out his lifeblood for us on the cross. And Jesus likened the wine that we drink at communion to his very blood So that as we drink, we might remember that Jesus drank to the dregs the cup of God's wrath. So that we might drink the cup of joy and gladness in him. And that cup of joy comes from the freedom that we have when we know that God receives us. No matter what we've done, he receives us as we are no matter how we may have let him or others down. We are like ancient Israel, that vine that produced no fruit. We are like that poor groom who was unprepared for the best day of his life. We are like those six empty jars with nothing to offer, waiting to be filled. And as Mary said, we have no wine. Each one of us fails to meet the standards that we set for our own selves, whether they are resolutions for the new year or benchmarks for productivity at work. We fail to meet the expectations of those other people in our lives, of our husbands and wives, of our children, of our employers. We are found lacking when our worth is measured by what we do or by what we fail to do. But as we admit failure of any nature, we find Jesus mighty to save. And so we pray before we eat and drink from the cup during every communion here. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. But thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Our worth comes from Jesus Christ, who poured out his blood for us. Amen.